Well, a number of years ago, uh, Dr. Billy Graham, who of course, as you know, is in heaven today, but Dr. Billy Graham was being introduced to a vast crowd of people. He wasn't at a crusade where he was preaching. He was just going to be speaking, being recognized at an event, but there was a vast crowd of people there. And the MC of the event who was introducing Dr. Graham went on for several minutes. He was cataloging all of the accomplishments of Billy Graham and the BGEA, and he talked at great length about the worldwide ministry that Dr. Graham had led over 50-plus years. He celebrated how many millions of people Dr. Graham had preached the gospel to, both on television and in person. Uh, He highlighted the fact that Dr. Graham was the friend of presidents and and the president's pastor, uh, one president after the other that he had great influence with. He went on and on and on, as people often did when they would celebrate Dr. Graham. And Dr. Graham was a very humble man, and so when this he, he was a bit embarrassed by this, uh, by this introduction going on and on so long. And so as was his typical uh, humble view of himself, when he stood up following that uh, introduction, these were the first words that he said. He said, folks, I grew up on a farm. And every time I saw a turtle on top of a fence post on that farm, I knew one thing. He didn't get there by himself. What Dr. Graham was highlighting was the fact that he was where he was by the grace of God and through the partnership of so many other people. Our text today in 1 Chronicles chapter number 11 reveals to us that uh, this great King David, whose life we've been studying over the past few weeks and will continue to do so in the coming weeks, that this great King David didn't get on top of his fence post by himself either. In fact, none of us ever do really get to our fence post on our own. Well, David didn't, and we're going to learn some things about that today. This is week number four. Over the last three weeks, we've been learning some really important things about the life of David. Let me just take a minute. Do you mind if I review with you for just a moment the three things that we've learned so far? Uh, In week number one, if you go back a month, we talked about the fact that David was most famously a man after God's own heart. This is why he ascended to the throne. God said, I have found a man. Really, he was a boy. I have found a man after my own heart. We learned that it means that David was downstream from God's heart. And so what mattered to God poured and flowed into David's heart and his life. In week number two, we talked about that epic battle, that famous story of the battle between David and And Goliath, and what we really learned was that every giant in our lives comes with an agenda, and that the agenda of the giant, the giant agenda, if you will, is to stop our spiritual progress, to thwart the plan that God has for us. God had a great plan for David's life. Goliath stood up to stop it, but David faced the giant, and the giant fell. We need to do the same. The third thing that we discovered last week was that David was transformed in God's waiting room. Fifteen years David had to wait before his anointing to be king became his coronation as king. And in those 15 years, 15 plus years probably, David learned much. 
Today we're going to be thinking about the fact that David didn't get to the fence post, top of the fence post by himself. David was surrounded by mighty men. David was surrounded by mighty men. In fact, I want you to look at what the Bible says in verse number 9. Chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles in verse 9 says, So David waxed or became greater and greater. It means that he's becoming more and more victorious, greater and greater in his wealth, more and more accomplished as a king, more and more empowered by the expansion of his kingdom. He is getting greater and greater. And why is it? Why did David become greater and greater? Well, the text goes on to tell us David became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. There's the first reason. Here's the truth of the matter. Any good thing in us is the work of God in us. Amen? Any good thing that we do or accomplish, any good thing that we're able to participate in is the fact that the Lord allows us to do it. It is the Lord that gives us strength to get up in the morning. It's the Lord that gives us wisdom to be able to go out and do what we do. It is God's grace in our lives that allows us to do anything. And the Bible says that he's becoming greater and greater as a king, as a ruler, Why? Because the Lord of hosts is with him. When the Bible says the Lord of hosts, it means the God of of angel armies. David wasn't just surrounded by mighty men. David was surrounded by mighty angels. And those angels, that work of God, was carrying him forward. He waxed greater and greater, verse 9 says, because the Lord was with him. Not just because the Lord was with him. Look at verse 10. These also are the chief of the mighty Men. David became greater and greater because the Lord was with him and because there were some mighty men with him. There were some people that God put around him. In fact, it's a pretty amazing story. Turn one page, look over to chapter number 12 and verse number 22. It begins in chapter 12 and verse 22. The chronicler begins to tell us how that God assembles around David this incredible army. Chapter 12, verse 22 says, for at, that, uh, for at that time, day by day, there came men to David to help him. Men began to assemble to him to help him until the men that came to him, verse 22 says, became a great host. The word host means an army. They became a great army. They were, in fact, like the army of God. I love that phrase. They were the army of God gathered to him. And beginning in that verse and going down through verse number 38 of chapter 12, we learn how many men, armed warriors, come to surround David and to establish his kingdom from every one of the tribes of Israel. Verse 24 talks about the tribe of Judah. 6,800 soldiers came from that family. Verse 25, the tribe of Simeon sent 7,100. Verse 27, 3,700 more. Verse 29, 3,000 again. Verse 30, 20,800. Verse 31, 18,000. Verse 33, 50,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 34, 37,000 from Naphtali. Verse 36, 40,000 came. 
Verse 37, from the tribe of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, another 120,000. It's an amazing army. In fact, when you add all those numbers up, it approaches 350,000 armed warriors that assembled to David, almost as if God just assembled them around David. This army of God came around him to expand and to fight and to lead the way in expanding his kingdom. They were all armed men. In fact, it's, it's an interesting passage. If you love war stories, if you love uh, military movies, you ought to read all of chapter 12. It talks about the warfare or the implements of warfare that they brought and the spears and the habergens and the, and the different uh, weapons that they brought with them. 350,000 men, all great fighters, all fierce warriors, all loyal patriots. But among these tens and hundreds of thousands of warriors, the Bible tells us that there was a select group. Among all of the, of the masses of fighters, there was a select group of men that were David's most treasured and fierce fighters. They were called his mighty men. In fact, I want you to circle this phrase, mighty men, two times in our text. You'll find it in verse number 10, chapter 11, and verse number 10, where the Bible talks about the mighty men, and then again in verse number 11. This is the number of the mighty men. Among all of the 350,000 plus warriors, there was a select group, the mighty men. Now, there are a couple of lists, several lists of the mighty men in Samuel and in Chronicles, and they list about 37 men, about 37 who were the elite group. Now, they were all fierce fighters, all 350,000, but among them, you had these 37 were who, who were the greatest warriors of all. I mean, what a great name to be known as anyway, right? The Mighty Men. Any of us would have been proud just to have been one of the 350,000 of David's army. But to be one of the 37 Mighty Men, I mean, that's a, that's a great name. It's totally not in keeping with the theme of Scripture, but it reminds me of Mighty Mouse. Do you remember Mighty Mouse? Here I come to save the day. Yesterday, when the snow hit out in Mars Hill, our daughter went out with our grandson. She was going to meet her husband who was working. Maverick was working, and she was going out to meet him. Well, she slid into a ditch. It got slick really fast, and so she called me because her husband was farther away than I was. She wasn't far from where I was. She called me. She said, Dad, I'm in a ditch. And I said, here I come to save the day. Mighty mouse. Mighty dad in the moment. Well, anyway, there were 37, hang with me now, 37 mighty men. I love that, I love that phrase, mighty men. By the way, there are a number of different people in the Bible, groups of people in the Bible that we honor because they were, they were known, they are remembered for some particular virtue. That they had. In fact, look at chapter 12 and verse 32. You've probably heard of the sons of Issachar. You'll read about them in 1 Chronicles 12 and 32, which says, And of the children of Issachar, 
which were men that had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. That's a group of men that we remember because they had this this quality, this virtue. They were wise men. They understood what was happening in their world and they knew how to respond. Man, we need some sons of Issachar today, don't we? We We need some sons of Issachar who understand what's going on in our world and they know what the church ought to do. There's another group that we celebrate from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17, which are known as the Bereans, the people of Berea. You remember what we, what we celebrated about the Bereans? It is that these were more noble than the others because they eagerly awaited the word of God and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Man, I want to be like the Bereans, right? You, you, you hear a message, you hear me preach a message, you ought to be like the Bereans. That's why you should bring your Bible to church so you can search the scriptures with me and make sure that I'm preaching it right. That's what the Bereans did. They were noble. Or, or, or then we remember a group called the Macedonians where Paul talks about the Macedonians who were noted for their generosity. Even though they weren't wealthy people, in fact, they were people living in great poverty. But Paul says of them in 2 Corinthians 8 that they were generous out of their great poverty. Well, These are some of the groups in the Bible that we think of. Man, I want to be wise and I want to be generous and I I want to be a person who who knows what we should do in these days. Well, I also want to be a mighty man. And you should want to be a mighty man or a mighty woman of God. The word mighty literally means to be a hero or to be a champion. It's the idea of someone who is strong and powerful and skilled. And so they are champions. So out of all of the 350,000 soldiers, there were about a few dozen, about 37 warriors known as mighty men. But did you know that there was an even more select group from within the 37? There was a group of three. And the Bible describes these three as not just mighty men, but the mightiest of the mighty men. In fact, I want you to circle with me, if you will, what the Bible says in verse 12. Chapter 11 and verse number 12. It speaks of these three as the three mighties. I love that. The three mighties. I don't want to just be one of the 350,000, and I don't even really just want to be one of the 37. Wouldn't it be awesome to be one of the three mighties? Uh, Circle the same uh, kind of phrase in verse number 19, where it calls them these three mightiest. You got the 350,000, you got the 37, and then you got the three. And can I just say to you this morning, if y'all are listening, would you shout amen? Man, I want God to see me as one of the three. I want to be one of the mighties for his glory. Before we read this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter number 11, I just want to say to you that I'm convinced that what I'm about to tell you is true. That our neighbors, our community, our culture despises a weak, watered-down, compromising lukewarm church. I really believe they do. Now, they may push back against, they may feel a little offended by the church that lovingly 
preaches the truth and tenderly calls them to repentance and boldly proclaims the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ and forgiveness. They may push back against the orthodox church, the church that tells the truth, but they won't despise that church. They'll respect those people. And you should know that with all of the struggles and troubles that we're facing in these United States, that the hope of America will be found, if it is to be found, it will be found in local communities when local churches in the power of God and in the boldness of a stand upon the word of God will bring transformation to those communities through the power of the gospel. That is where hope will be found. But it will not be found in a weak and a watered down church. There is no hope for America in a weak church. And I'm convinced that Jesus is looking for churches filled with people who want to be mighty men and mighty women of God. And may it be that Brookstone will forever be a church filled with the mighties. Let's read the passage, 1 Chronicles chapter number 11 beginning in verse 9. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And these also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Joshabim, a Hagmonite, the chief of the captains. This man, verse 11 says, lifted up his spear against 300 who were slain by him in one battle. And after him, there was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, who was one of the three mighties. He was with David at Pasdamim, you remember, this is Ephesdamim, we talked about a few weeks ago. There, and there the Philistines were gathered together to battle, where there was a parcel of ground full of barley, and the people fled from before the Philistines. And they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Now three of the 30 captains went down to the rock of David into the cave of Adullam. And the host of the Philistines had encamped in the valley of Rephaim and David was then in the stronghold, that is at Adullam, and the Philistines' garrison was at Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that well that's at the gate. And these three mightiest break through the host of the Philistines. They drew water out of that well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they took it, and they brought it to David. But David would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, My God forbid me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? 
For with the jeopardy of their lives, they brought this water to me. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mightiest. Now, I want to focus your attention this morning, not on the 350,000, not on the 37, but I want us to focus our attention on these three mightiest of David's men, two of whom, only two of whom, are mentioned in this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter number 11. Thankfully, there is a parallel passage that we'll go and look at in just a minute. Go ahead and make a note of it somewhere in your notes. It's 2 Samuel chapter number 23, where in that passage, we'll find some more details about these three and we'll find the name of the third. But while we're still in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, let's talk about at least the first two of these three mightiest men. Let's start with Jera, uh, um, Jashabim. Jashabim is the first one mentioned. He's also known as Adino. That's the name he's given in 2 Samuel 23. Write this down. Jashabim, or Adino, displayed great courage. If I want to be one of the mightiest, if I want to be one of those men or women that, that would be known to God as one of the mightiest, then I can learn something from Jashabim. Because the Bible tells us that he faced a great challenge, a great battle, and he displayed great courage in that battle. In fact, the Bible tells us in verse 11 that he slew in one battle with his singular sword 300 Philistines at once. But here's what's interesting. The text in 2 Samuel seems to indicate that it wasn't only 300 Philistines that came at him to fight. The number was actually 800 and that these Philistine soldiers kept coming, 800 of them, and as he's fighting, he dispatched 300 of them on his own. He displayed great courage. Secondly, the passage mentions Eleazar. Write it down this way, this truth about Eleazar. Eleazar displayed a great commitment. Great commitment. Not only about you, but... But I value, I appreciate Eleazar and his display of commitment more than almost anything else that I see in this passage. But th this may just be me. This is, this is one of the things that I value. If you know me very well, you know that one of the things I value above all else is commitment, is loyalty, is faithfulness to what we say we are going to do or who we say we are going to be. In the body of Christ, we should be loyal to one another. Amen? We should be committed to one another. And I have to tell you, Eleazar was. Verses 13 and 14 of this passage describe a battle. Notice what it says. Verse 13, he, Eleazar, was with David. He was with David. Look at the end of verse number 13. But the people fled. That's what that means. It means that of the 350,000, most of them fled in this particular battle, leaving David, and they fled away from the enemy except Eleazar. He stayed with David, and presumably the other 37-ish, or at least the three mighties, but Eleazar is named in verse 13 as 14, and 14 as staying with David in verse 14 says, and they, David and Eleazar, presumably the other mighty, stood in that ground, in that barley field, and they fought the Philistines and they delivered it, and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Jashabim displayed great courage, and Eleazar displayed great 
commitment. Thirdly, I want you to write down the name Shema. Shema. Write it down this way. Shema displayed great conviction. Now, I'm going to turn. You don't have to because you're writing that note perhaps and you'll read this later. But uh, let me just take you over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We have this parallel passage describing these events uh, that we read about in 1 Chronicles. But listen to this description of Shema. He is the third of the mightiest, mightiest men. In verse 11, 2 Samuel 23 verse 11 says, And after him was Shema. Shema was the son of Agi, he was a, uh, who was a Herahite. Her- and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils or, or beans or peas. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he, Shema, stood in the midst of that ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Now, the, the thing that I want you to notice about Shema is that he stood his ground. And what piece of ground did he choose to fight over? A pea patch. It was a, it was a patch of lentils, but it was, it was only a little pea patch, but it was his pea patch. Amen? And he decided the devil, the Philistines, the enemy, is not going to get my pea patch. And he was committed to fighting for that little parcel of ground. And God gave him the victory. He, he displayed great conviction. He was not going to give up that piece of ground. These three men displayed courage, commitment, and conviction. And I'm convinced that these men are exemplary models of the characteristics that need to be on display that are so desperately needed in these days within the church. Let me just say it to you plainly. The church of Jesus Christ needs courage today. We need people who will say, I will face every battle as it comes in the courage and the strength of the courage that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. I will push through my fear. I will push through uh, my resistance. And I will display courage as I serve the Lord. Commitment. The church needs to defend what God has given to us today and to display the commitment that Eleazar did. And conviction. I'll defend what God has given me, and I will not give it up because I have these convictions from the Lord. And it was these three men and their three characteristics, commitment, courage, conviction. It was those three things that motivated them to do something in our text that seems outrageous. And in fact, seems foolhardy and incredibly foolishly risky. Look at it. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter number 9, where the Bible tells the story of the well at Bethlehem and these three men going to get a drink of water for David. As we read through this, I want you to think about the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the church dwelling in an embattled land. We're not fighting the Philistines, but we're fighting a spiritual warfare. We're fighting a culture that is opposed to us. We're fighting a culture which is crippled and locked down in fear. And what is the attitude of the church to be in these days? Well, I think Adino or Jashabim, Elazar, and Shema show us. First of all, write it down. I think they show us how the church 
should function. I really do. I think there's a great lesson for us here in how the church should function. By the way, sometimes churches suffer from functional paralysis. Did you know this? Now listen, I'm a church guy, right? I've been a pastor for going on 40 years now, all of my adult life. All of my adult life is all I've done is I've been a local church pastor. I've been the pastor of this church for most of those years, over 30 of those years. I've interacted with other churches, other pastors. I've, I, I, I know churches and I know pastors. And I just want to know that far too often churches suffer from paralysis. There are all sorts of organizational problems that plague churches, just a few. Mission drift, where the church forgets what it is that they're supposed to be about. Sideways energy, where the church is very busy, working tirelessly, doing nothing. But it doesn't mean they're not doing anything, it means they're doing nothing for the kingdom. A consumer mentality, where churches are filled with people who come to receive and never give. We're people who only want their itch to be scratched, but no concern about serving or scratching the itches of this broken world. A lack of vision, a lack of leadership, organizational dysfunction, infighting, power struggles, an inward focus, traditionalism, a hundred other things that cause churches and the ministry of those churches to grind to a halt, or at best, a slow crawl. What's interesting is when you look at David's mighty men, none of these things plagued them. None of them plagued them. None of these things got in their way. And you can tell why they didn't get in their way because of how they are described. Go back to chapter 12, verse 22, how they are described as being the army of God. They recognized that we are God's army. And so they were motivated by, they were guided by the mandate that God had given them. They functioned according to the mandate that God had prescribed to them. And that mandate's found in chapter number 11 and verse number 10. We read this verse in the beginning. Listen to it again. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. That was their mandate. That was what moved them as the army of God. In fact, write it down this way. This will help make it clear. Why did this army of God, these men of David, fight so well together to accomplish what they knew they were to do. Write it down. Here's why. Because God had spoken and they knew it. They knew that God had spoken. That's what verse number 10 says. According to the word of the Lord spoken concerning Israel. And what was the word of the Lord spoken concerning Israel? That David was to be the king. David is to reign. David is to rule The Davidic empire is to be established. His kingdom is to be established. And God is to set up this kingdom in Israel. And God had clearly spoken it. And that was their mandate. Loved ones, just as plainly. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. Just as plainly, in fact, more plainly, God has spoken to his church today. We have 
a mandate. It is to carry the gospel to the nations. It is to preach the word to every creature. It is to make disciples. And every one of us can say, God has spoken, and I know what God has said. And when we are motivated by the mandate of what God has called us to do, there is no organizational, organizational dysfunction among us. There's no sideways energy. There, there's no mission drift because we know what God has said. God had spoken and they knew it and it caused them to function properly. The second thing that happened that caused them to function properly is that they strengthened one another for God's purpose. Again, it's verse number 10. These are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who had heard God speak and they knew what their mandate was, that David was to rule as king. And because they knew what their mandate was, look at what verse number 10 says, they strengthened themselves with David in his kingdom and with all Israel in order to accomplish the mandate. Do you see it? God had spoken. They knew what they were to do. And they knew that if they were to do what God had called them to do, they must strengthen themselves together. It's no different for the church. It's exactly what the church must understand. That in order for us to carry out the mandate that God has called us to in 2021, we must strengthen one another. Now, I'm not going to take the time to preach it, but you can go read it later. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us exactly how this strengthening is to happen. That God has called us together as a body. That God gifts the body with pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and spiritual leadership. That through that leadership, that the body of Christ, all of us together are to be edified, built up, strengthened. And then as we each grow stronger, we have the responsibility to strengthen one another. And as we each strengthen one another, then collectively we become stronger. And so that we are no longer blown around by winds of doctrine. We're no longer running around like busybody little children not knowing what we're doing, all off mission, all dysfunctional. We rise up in the strength that comes from one another ministering to each other, we rise up a strong person who can carry out the mission that God has called us to carry out. We can be like Shema and Adino and, and, and uh, 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 Eleazar and these mighty men because God has spoken. We know what he has said and we know how to be strong together. And the third thing that made them function correctly as the army of God is that they were bound together in mutual love. Look at chapter number 12 when these men are gathering to David. This army is gathering. He, he's not sure what the motivation is of all of them. Look at chapter 12 and verse 17 when David went out to meet them. This is what he said to them. If you come peaceably unto me to help me, then my heart will be knit to yours. But if you come to oppose me, then God will judge you. And they answer in verse number 18, the Spirit of God came upon Amaziah, who was the chief of the captain. He said, thine we are, David. We are on your side, son of Jesse. Peace, peace be unto you. Peace be to your helpers, for the Lord your God will help you. When David and these men put their arms around each other and they were bound together in love. And I want to tell you something. When you've got a group of men, as in this passage, who are bound together in love, who understand how to strengthen one another and who know what God has spoken, you have an army of God. 
that will do his work. And it applies to the church today. May Brookstone be a church bound together in love, building one another up to be strong together and understanding what God has called us to do. I see Ken Roberts sitting here and Ken's been on our staff for so many years. Ken's been a part of our church since he was 13 years old. And, and uh, a number of years ago, Ken led a ministry in our church for a, a brief and powerful season. It was a men's ministry. It was, a, it was called Men Alive, as I recall, Ken. And it, it discipled men. A number of you men who are here this morning and watching online grew in your faith by leaps and bounds during that season of Men Alive. And, Several groups of men discipling one another, really acting like these mighty men together. One night, Ken called me or one day said to me, hey, I want you to come over to my house on such and such night. Our Men Alive group is meeting and they want to pray over you. I said, that's awesome. Thanks, Ken. I'd love to do that. And that happens periodically over the years in ministry. They'll say, hey, can you come? Our life group wants to pray over you or whatever. And I said, oh, that's great. And so I went to that meeting and they were all you know around talking and we were chatting for a bit and Ken said okay okay we're gonna pray let's gather around pray over our pastor and the most profound one of the most profound experiences of my life happened in that moment I wasn't prepared for it but those men about a dozen of them they begin to gather around me and I've been prayed over numerous times where men will just come they'll they'll put their hands on my shoulders or my head or whatever they'll just huddle up around me but these men I almost can't tell you this without getting emotional about it, but these men, and I would venture to say all dozen of these men are still part of our church. This has been 10, 15 years ago. These men came around me, and as they got close, they all turned their backs to me. And before I knew what had happened, I was encircled by a circle of a dozen men, all facing outward. And this is what they said. This is our posture toward you. We will protect you. And if Satan wants to get to our pastor, he's got to come through us. Wow. That, loved ones, is the bond of love and the community of the saints that follows the word of God and becomes an army that overpowers the forces of hell and enlarges the kingdom of God. These men taught us how the church should function. Number two, Adino Elazar and Shema taught us how the church should serve one another. You read this passage and you learn of the beautiful and sacrificial attitude of service. Chapter number 11, verses 15, 16, 17, 18. There may not be a more beautiful example of an act of selfless sacrificial service anywhere in the Bible other than the cross than what you see in this passage. And and it didn't begin when they went down to Bethlehem and fought their way through the Philistines to get that water. It began in verse 15. Look at it. Now three of the 30 captains, we, we, we assume these three mightiest, went down to the rock to David to the cave of Adullam David was in the stronghold in the cave because the host of the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim and David was in that stronghold and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem which was only about 12 miles away. 
And one of the things that is so obvious to me in this passage is that David was in a bind. David, whom they loved, was fighting a battle. He was holed up in a, in a cave, in a stronghold. They heard that he was there, and they went to him. I'll tell you, this is what the church does in sacrificial service. We run to one another. When someone of us is hurting, we run to that one. When someone of us is holed up in a battle, we go and we surround that one. And that's what they did. They came down to that rock, to that stronghold in the cave of Adullam. Now David was there because he knew it was a safe place. He knew it was a place where he could could strategize from. He would have no doubt known this cave. He had been there earlier. He no doubt knew this cave from his childhood, from keeping the, the sheep of his father Jesse. It's only about a dozen miles from Bethlehem. But he was there and in trouble, and they came to him. It's one of the beautiful things about being a part of the body of Christ. When we get in trouble, our brothers come running to us. Amen. And we need something. When we're in trouble, when, when the battle is on, we're not alone in the battle. I said to someone this, this past week, you need me, you call me day or night. My phone rings. I'm coming to you. I'll come running. And the body of Christ ought to love each other that way. Well, they came to him at the rock in the cave of Adullam, but not only were they present in his need, but they were devoted to him. They were leaning in and they were listening to him. Verse number 17 says that David longed and said, oh, that somebody would give me a drink of water from the well that's at Bethlehem. Now, this is, this is just what you would expect, right? I mean, the Bible tells us in the other passage, 2 Samuel 23, that this happens in the harvest time. It's in the summer. I've been in Israel in the summer. It's hot. And, and he was in the hottest part of the year. He was in a cave. He was drinking water that had been stored up, so it wasn't cool and fresh. And as he's probably taking a drink of that warm, tepid water, he goes, you know what I'd love to have? Man, I, w- I remember when I was a boy. I remember that, that well at Bethlehem. That's the deepest, coolest, freshest well in the whole of, of Israel. I wish it was possible if, if somebody could just get me a drink of water. Now, this wasn't a command. It wasn't an order. It wasn't even an ask. It was just an expression of a longing. Oh, verse number 17, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well that is at the gate of Bethlehem. And they were so devoted to him that this desire of his motivated them to serve him and they went and got him a drink of water. Now, the Philistines garrisoned, they had soldiers garrisoned at Bethlehem. The text is clear, they would have had to have fought their way through the soldiers, fought their way to the well and then to to get the water out of the well and they brought it back to David. They died to themselves. They could have died on the mission, but they died to themselves and they sacrificed so much. Now, loved ones, I just want to say to you that these warriors were not self-centered and self-focused consumers. They weren't asking, David, what can you do for us? They weren't takers. They were givers. They weren't the ones that when a need, not even a need, just a longing was expressed, they weren't the ones that stepped back and looked at the floor. They were the ones that stepped up and said, I want to serve you. 
this is how the body of Christ should function. This is how the church should serve one another. Imagine the power of a church. Imagine the power of a church filled with mighties, filled with the mightiest. People who would would sacrifice their own well-being, sacrifice their own safety even, sacrifice their own ease and comfort so that the needs and even the longings of the rest in the body of Christ could be met. Where everybody in the church didn't say, what's in it for me? But everybody in the church said, how can I die to myself to serve God's purposes with you? Now that'd be a mighty church. And that would be a church that would bring hope to a community and beyond. They show us how to do that. And then lastly, in this act of Adino, Elazar, and Shema, and in David's response, we see how the church should worship. Look at the end of verse number 18 and verse number 19. They fight their way through the garrison of the Philistines. They make their way to the well. They draw the water up out of the well. It's 12 miles to the fight. Then they fight. Then they come 12 miles back. Verse number 18 says they took it and they brought it to David. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? David, do you remember last night? They come in like something behind their back. You remember last night? You said you'd love to have some water from the well. Oh, man, I'd love to. That'd be. We went and got it for you. They had, you know, probably wounded and blood rolling down their brow and kind of massaging their hand from the long sword fight. And we, we just, we love you so much, David. You're such an awesome king. And, and we just value you. And we want God to refresh you so you can lead us. And we just, we just want to go get it for you. So here. And he, and he receives it. Look what he does. Verse number 18. He took it, or they took it, brought it to David, but David would not drink of it, but he poured it out. What? They risked life and limb? They fought through the Philistines to get him a drink of this water, and he pours it out? The text doesn't say he poured it out, does it? I mean, it doesn't just say that. It says he poured it out to the Lord. In other words, he took this this water, and he pours it out as a drink offering to the Lord. In in an act of worship, literally offering not the water, but offering the attitude of service and self-sacrifice of his friends, offering that to the Lord as an act of worship. So here's what I want you to know. If you're listening, say amen. David didn't take that water and go, oh, you guys are good servants. Way to go. Thanks for getting this for me. And by the way, tomorrow I'd like to have. He didn't take their act of service and expect something more. He saw what they did, not as an act of service to him, but more as an act of worship to God. And he received what they did and turned it as an offering of worship. You see, this ought to be the attitude in the church. Can I ask you a question? It's an honest question, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not being harsh at all. Did you come here today to get what you could get or to give what you could give? Did you come here today expecting to receive something, and you'll be back next Sunday expecting to receive something else? 
Or did you come today to know that when you pull into the parking lot, the guys in the yellow jackets who direct you to a parking place and the people who hold the door and say good morning and welcome and the people who stand and lead you in worship and the people who make sure that the audio is right and the people who take care and serve your little ones in ministry, that they do that not just to serve you but as an act of worship to their God. And everything that you receive, you go, God, this is for you. Thank you. And God, can I do something like that for somebody else next week? They knew that service really was worship. David understood that it wasn't about him, but it was about the glory of God. So let me close by saying to you, I want you to be a mighty man. I want you to long to be a mighty woman. To say, God, I want to be one of your mighties. Not a taker, but a giver. Not one who steps back, but one who steps up. Not one just numbered among the faceless millions. But God, at least if nobody nobody in this world knows it, that's okay. But Lord, as long as you know it, that my heart is to be a mighty man or woman for you. And if God will fill these chairs... Fill this church, fill these ministries with mighty men and women of God. Weaverville, Buncombe County, Yancey County, Madison County, and Western North Carolina and beyond will be changed to the glory of God.